who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread, and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me, and eat what is good, and your soul will delight in the richest of fare. Give ear and come to me. Hear me, that your soul may live. Welcome to Springs of Living Water with Pastors Ray and Jan Greenland. Restore us again, O God our Savior, and put away your displeasure toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger through all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your unfailing love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. We've been reading from Psalm 85, verses 4 through 7, and we welcome you today on Springs of Living Water. We welcome you to this broadcast today. We have a special guest with us by telephone line. We're eager to have him share his insights and his understandings. Our guest is Richard Owens Roberts. He is an itinerant preacher, a Bible expositor, a collector of rare books, a bookseller, a publisher. What interests me the most in our guest is that he has done extensive research in the area of revival. He has also spent a lifetime searching out before God in quietness and trust, searching out before God the ways of God. Today we welcome to our our radio program, Richard Owen Roberts. Welcome, Richard. Thank you very much. Mm. And thank you for giving us your time. We consider it a privilege to have you join us live today on WABS. Well, I'm grateful for the opportunity. We have several questions, and we want to just dive right in. Uh, The first question we'd like to ask you is, uh, Brother, from every outward indication, the Christian church in America is prospering. But do you believe the church is truly prospering? What, what is it that you see in the condition of the church? You travel extensively. You preach and teach in many different areas. What is, what's happening to the church in America? Well, the key word is the word that you just used, outwardly. Certainly what you said is the case. Outwardly things look splendid. But Christianity... Uh, while there are outward aspects, this is first and foremost inward. It has to do primarily with our relationship with God. The way one perceives a matter depends upon their relationship with God. Mm. If you look at the church from man's standpoint, it looks marvelous. Mm. If you look at it from God's standpoint, it looks extremely ill. It's devastatingly sorrowful in its condition. Very little about the church in any way would be pleasing to God unless, now the critical question is, uh, how many gods are there? Mm. If there are any number 
or uh, even if there are just two, uh, the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. And if the God of the Old Testament is dead and the God of the New Testament lives, uh, one could imagine that that God is very pleased with all the activity, all the vast numbers of people tied into the church. But if indeed God is correct when he says that he alone is God, when he teaches that there is only one God, when he insists that he changes not, then the God of today is the same as the God of yesterday. And the God of the Old Testament, the God of the New Testament are one God without change. Now, some would not be prepared to say that uh, there are two gods, but they think maybe God has changed. He's gotten control of his temper. He's no longer a god of wrath. He's <laughs> a god of love, of kindness. He just oozes grace and mercy uh, in every direction. But that means there's a change in God mm. because the God of the Old Testament is a god of holiness. He despises sin. He finds it impossible to relate to those who delight in sin. He distances himself from them. He refuses to bless uh, that which is obnoxious to him. And uh, so if we are dealing with one and the same God that Israel faced, then how could we suppose for a moment that God is pleased with the church, that he regards all this well? Uh, every sober-minded person knows that the sin rate in the church is essentially the same as the sin rate in the world. You can't uh, name any crime or sin where there's any essential difference there. Are homosexuals in the church to the same degree, maybe even a little worse than in the world? The abortion rate, the drunkenness rate, other substance abuse rates, take whatever sin you please. The church and the world are one and the same. Mm -hmm. And how then can we suppose that God is pleased when he's called people to holiness? And certainly, when you have a people who have no interest in holiness, and we have to face the fact that it's not merely that there are many in the church who are unholy, but basically the typical church will not tolerate serious preaching on holiness. So we're dealing uh, with an outward view from a man-centered perspective, where things look good, we're dealing with an inward view from a God-orientated approach where things look terrible. Mm. Now, Brother Roberts, how do you deal then with almost every major ministry that broadcasts in America? Almost without exception, they of one unity teach the unconditional love of God. Well, I fear that many of them have never really seriously looked at Scripture. I recall an instance 
quite a few years ago where I sat in a large Western church. You have heard it said, God loves the sinner, but he hates the sinner's sin. But I say unto you, God hates both the sin and the unrepentant sinner. Now that created an immense uh, amount of opposition. Uh, One very prominent man uh, wrote me a very hot letter uh, in which he denounced me as extraordinarily dangerous because, uh, as he said, you're very clever in the way you state things and you're very, uh, you have a taking way. People are drawn into your web and yet you are heretic of the worst order. Mm. And it was a really a very severe letter. Uh, I wrote back to him, I believe, what was an extremely kind uh, letter saying to him, uh, I believe that you are at a very considerable disadvantage. You have attacked me on a matter that you have never biblically considered. The advantage I have over you is I have looked carefully at every single passage of Scripture where there's anything said about the subject of love, and I cannot find one single passage that hints that God loves unrepentant sinners. But I can find many, many passages where he declares his hatred. So I think what we have to solemnly face is that we are living at a time when people are more caught up in traditional notions and nice ideas than they are in the Bible itself. And they would sooner believe something comfortable than they would to face the realities of the Word of God. Now, God would be in violation of himself if he loved unrepentant sinners. It poses an immense uh, intellectual problem even. Uh, I've said to people who sought to oppose uh, this idea, uh, what goes to hell? Does God send sin to hell? Or does he send sinners to hell? Yes. No one has ever... Uh, insisted, well, he just sent sin to hell. They acknowledge that it's sinners. Well, then, how can you say God loves sinners and yet he consigns them to an eternal perdition and suffering? Mm. There are many, many sobering things biblically that could be stated, but I believe that uh, we are living at a time when notions like God loves everybody have uh, taken precedence over plain biblical truth. Mm. Well, then how do you deal with the, with the Christian who insists that they are saved and yet continue to walk in their sin with boldness? Well, unfortunately, there are many who sincerely believe that they're saved, who can even tell you the day and the hour 
that they were saved, uh, who, uh, if they took Scripture seriously, would be trembling uh, at the realization that Christ uh, made many very adamant statements to the effect that not everyone that calls upon the Lord, uh, who says, Lord, Lord, is saved, but those that do the will of his Father in heaven. And over and over we have statements such as, many are called, few are chosen. Mm -hmm. And there is a general tendency among American preachers uh, to take in as many people as they possibly can and uh, to make the message so broad and inviting and easy uh, that everybody uh, without difficulty can accept it. And then they give them some proof text that that means they're saved. And again, they haven't paid any serious attention to the bulk of Scripture, just lifted out of context an occasional statement that they favor. Uh, I don't have any way to know what the statistics are. I don't believe anybody does. But uh, estimates have been made that at least 70% of the members of the evangelical churches in America are as lost as Satan himself. Mm. Now, whether that's true or untrue, I don't know. I just know mm. that uh, you look at Virtually any church, take some of these huge churches that seem to be prospering. They may have, say, 12,000 people on Sunday morning, or if they have a Saturday night meeting between Saturday night and Sunday morning. If they have any prayer meeting at all, and many of them don't seem to have any prayer meetings, they probably have fewer than 50 people in attendance. I ask one local pastor here this same question regarding their prayer meeting, and this is one of the large mega churches here in Northern Virginia. And his response was a, a, a laugh, and he said, "Oh yes, we have we have a little area that we give to our geriatric people so they can pray for their sore toes." And that was his response, and this is one of the leading Bible churches in the Washington metro area. Yeah. And Ray, there's another thing that, that we have reached constantly and have been attracted with, and we're, we're preaching on the, on the radio here, uh, people just don't read their Bibles. I mean, they believe whatever the pastor says, and I'm not saying that pastors, some pastors preach the word and some don't preach at all, so if you aren't preaching all of it, it's not the truth, but you don't read the Bible for themselves, and that's one of the things we just really encourage people to do. Read your Bible. Make it a relay race from Genesis to Revelation three or four or five times a year. When you're done with it, read it again, and God's Word will scrub and clean. Yes, I think that unfortunately there are many people who are willing to leave their salvation in someone else's hands. That's right and not concern themselves with it. So if some religious spokesman tells them they're all right, uh, then they assume that they are all right. Mm. But Christianity is very much uh, an individual matter. Every single person deals with the Lord. One of the great issues of the Protestant Reformation 
was the priesthood of each believer. Yes. And uh, it's not merely a priesthood, but every single believer is responsible before God and must answer to God. Their pastor isn't going to answer mm-hmm. for them. And if uh, they're not seriously enough interested to even inquire personally of God what their status is, they certainly are in most grievous danger. And there no doubt are people listening now who are assuming that they are right with God because someone else has either plainly told them they were or hinted as much, and they have never carefully searched the matter out themselves. They've never spent even 15 minutes seeking God. Mm. And uh, they're basing their comfort and their security uh, on foolishness that's so it's terrifying it really is and of course I'm and my wife and I are here in Washington DC where we this has been our area of ministry we've not traveled the country we've not preached across the country and I guess one of my questions to you is this is this a regionalized thing or is this simply a product of the American culture, and is this what we're exporting in our missions work? Well, tragically, that is exactly the case. I have not been able to discern any single area of the country where things were any better morally or spiritually than any other part, and we are great exporters, despite the fact that we have had a rather severe balance of trade problem economically uh, with manufactured goods and so on, we are uh, the world's foremost uh, exporters of religious notions. Mm. And in many parts of the world, the church is as badly hurt as it is here because American notions of religion have been exported there, and they have embraced them as if we always tell the truth. Uh, I don't uh, travel constantly in foreign lands, but from time to time, normally once or twice a year, I make a foreign trip. And uh, wherever I have been, I have seen this immense problem. Uh, We have some extremely faithful missionaries who never export error, but we have plenty of others who are themselves so caught up in the evangelical traditionalism that they couldn't possibly teach or preach anything other than the error that they've embraced. So what's the answer? Well, the answer, obviously, is God. (laughs) And uh, the thing that, in my mind, just totally underlines what we've been speaking about is this very, very sad observation. The less that is said about God in the church, and, and I'm speaking now specifically of what is said biblically about God, notions about God are acceptable, but biblical facts about God are basically undesirable. So that wherever you have a church where much is said about God, 
with very few exceptions, you have a thinning attendance. Mm. The more serious the preaching is about God, the fewer the people who are coming to hear it. And if you want to grow a big church, then the main thing you have to refrain from is speaking seriously about God. Just give a vague notion of God. Let, let it be of a religious sort, not specific, not earnest, uh, not thoroughly biblical, and people will come in great uh, numbers to hear mediocre, careless, wide-of-the-mark proclamations. But where you have serious preaching, you have basically a decline in attendance. Now, that has not always been true. I don't believe it always will be true. Mm. I believe it's a characteristic of this age. Yes. But I believe the day will come mm. when things will turn around and the places where there is a true ministry of the Word of God and God himself is immensely elevated, they will be packed, jammed with people. Mm. And those that are toying around uh, will have diminishing numbers. Yes. And we pray for and we await that turn when God-centered churches and living are indeed the primary ones mm. and where the blessing of God exists. But I think what we have tied in with this is the simple fact that when you have a nation that is under divine judgment, that judgment could take on any number of forms. Obviously, God is unlimited, uh, and he has an incredible imagination, so no one would dare uh, to say how God could or would act. But using our scriptures, we uh, observe that the judgments of God fall into two basic categories. There are what we call uh, remedial or gracious judgments, and there are what we call technically final judgments. Now, an easy way of thinking through these matters is to think of a final judgment as a judgment in which there is neither time nor opportunity for repentance. We have in our New Testaments, in the book of Acts, a very classic example of this. We have Ananias coming uh, in where Peter was, mm -hmm. and he's asked uh, concerning uh, the distribution of a certain sum of money, and he tells a lie. Yes. Mm -hmm. Peter doesn't say mm -hmm. to him, no. You're on dangerous ground. Uh, I, I, I want you to see the prayer room over there. You better slip over to the prayer room. And confess that sin. Confess that <laughs> yes. sin. And try and get right with mm. God. No, there's not a moment mm. for confession, for repentance. The judgment of God falls. Mm. And uh, he is dead. Not very long thereafter, his wife comes in. And the 
a similar process is repeated. Now we have in the Old Testament just incredible numbers of judgments of this sort where death and destruction occur. Uh, often in a moment of time, maybe God, uh, so to speak, whispers in the ear of Philistine leaders, uh, Israel is yours, help yourself. And perhaps in a single day, uh, they destroy 132,000 mm -hmm. Israelites. Mm -hmm. Those are standard judgments, final judgments. Now, we live at a time when the thinking of people is so careless spiritually and biblically that uh, many, uh, when they hear the word judgment, think of nothing other than death and destruction. So I've had preachers say to me, well, if we're not careful, God may judge us. Hmm. And I'm apt to say to them, since when are the judgments of God iffy hmm. or uncertain? What do you mean, if we're not careful? God has judged us. Yes. And oh, no, yes. they say. Yes. We're still here. Yes. Ah, the problem is you don't understand that God's first desire is not death mm. and destruction, but repentance, repentance. Yes. and faith. Yes. And uh, so when he's not through with the people, and we see just so many wonderful illustrations of this in the history of Israel, yes. when he's not through with the people, he brings some form of a remedial Judgment, a judgment intended to correct, mm -hmm. uh, to change. It's gracious. It oozes the mercy of God. Now, we are seeing uh, what I would describe as one of numerous remedial judgments right now. The state of Colorado uh, is on fire to an extraordinarily large degree. Mm. God could have destroyed the entire state. Yes. Instead, he's allowed the destruction of much material goods, but relatively few lives. Mm -hmm. That's his have, grace. Yes, we have incredible uh, accounts of plagues of locusts, Joel. Uh, describes one of these in a way that is simply astonishing. We have various diseases. Mm. We have floods, earthquakes, tornadoes. I mean, the list is virtually endless. And when you examine them, you think, well, that was certainly destructive. But it's amazing how few died. Now, I observe that the general tendency when America, America comes through some uh, great calamity is to boast and say, well, we sure handled that well. Mm. So look at the outpouring of love and kindness uh, and so on. And very few ask the question, is God speaking to us? Yes. Mm -hmm. One of the things that greatly impressed me uh, in earlier years was uh, the pamphlet literature that was produced uh, in America 
uh, say up until approximately 1850. Uh, I have hundreds of these in my own uh, library, and of course there are many, many that I do not have. But so many of these focus on the judgments of God. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Days of fasting and prayer. Yes. Uh, yes. Some called by state. Uh, some called by federal governments. But days in which the pastors uh, addressed uh, mm-hmm. the peoples and uh, so often raised the question, what is God's message in this calamity that we are experiencing. And uh, time after time after time, uh, the nation was called to repentance. uh, And uh, the prompt was the goodness of God in a remedial judgment. And I believe that's what we're facing today, that we are truly under remedial judgment, but... I do not think our leaders interpret aright what is transpiring. Mm-hmm. And the most astonishing of these remedial judgments, the most devastating, is the withdrawal of God's manifest presence yes. from the church. We need to take a two-minute break. We're speaking with Richard Owens Roberts. He is an itinerant preacher, a Bible expository, a man of God. Mm. And we'd like to invite you to join us with your questions. Our telephone number is 1-877-534-0780. We're back for the second half of Springs of Living Water. We're speaking with a dear pastor, a preacher, a Bible expositor, Richard Owen Roberts. And Brother, your experience and what you're describing is mm. so enlightening, but also so terrifying. Yes. And oh many of you who are listening, if you would like to join us and ask a question, or if you would like to ask for prayer, for the breaking of this kind of bondage, cheap bondage, cheap theology, a cheap grace, if you would like to ask for prayer today, if this conversation brings the convicting power of the Holy Spirit. Mm. You're welcome to call and we'll stop and we'll pray because the reason we're here is to lift up Jesus Christ. We're here to lift up the cross. That's the only reason we're sharing this with you. And you can tell from our guest, who's it's, it's really our brother in Jesus, you can tell that he's just pouring out his soul and his heart And I just want him to go on and on because it's so wonderful to hear the perspective that he has seen. And I just I just know that the listeners are just like I am, all ears. Yes. (laughs) Our telephone number is one eight seven seven five three four zero seven eight zero. And you're welcome to join us on air uh, with your questions or with your request for prayer and intercession 
for the situation that you're facing and the sin that has caught you. Uh, we want today for the delivering power of the Holy Spirit to touch your life. Ray, you know, the shocking thing that I heard um, Pastor Robert say was that there's, a, and he doesn't say that it's a statistic that he has heard verified, but to even say that 50%, that he quoted 70% of the evangelical church today are as lost as Satan himself, that's so terrifying to me. It just goes to the core of my, my heart, and I'm just saying, Lord Jesus, what must he think when he looks at this body today? Yes. Mm. This brings us to the question that is really on my heart, as we look at this situation, I recognize that there's no way this broadcast or the National Prayer Chapel or any other church is going to bring the transforming power of God to this mm. city. We're, we're absolutely unable to do this. It's going to take something that you call revival. Mm. Would you describe for us what revival is? Yes, and with great joy I would do so. Revival in its very essence is God. Now I have made mention of the fact when God is grieved with his people, they've sinned and they will not repent, he may withdraw his manifest presence. That I believe he has done from the churches in America. The church is then faced with two options. Number one, let's not notice what happened. Let's go on as if all is well. We know how to do church. We don't need God. God, in fact, often gets in the way. I've had a pastor say to me not long ago the reason his church did not have prayer meeting was they had found that prayer meetings got in the way. Mm. People waited on God mm. to do something which they were perfectly capable of doing themselves. And that, I think, is essentially what's happened. Mm. Instead of the church falling on its face before God and crying out in repentance and uh, intercession, oh, God, we can't live without you. Please, mm -hmm. please return uh, the church has just gone right on uh, and has not even felt the absence of God. Now, revival is, as I just said, God. Prior to all the revivals of Scripture, and indeed, as far as I am able to tell, every revival in history, there has been some form of a righteous judgment from God. And most often, that righteous judgment has been the withdrawal of his manifest presence. Mm. When that happens, wise, truly, sober, godly people say we can't go on. Yes. We must have God. This happened many, many times in America. I uh, mentioned these fast days, time after time. Our people in this country shut everything down, closed the stores, closed the factories, closed government offices. We have numerous records, indeed, of Congress itself 
the journey and going together to church to seek the face of God and plead with God to return. Mm. And, and the revival is exactly that, a, a return of God to his people. In Psalm 80, there is a marvelous uh, statement about revival. The whole chapter really yes. deals with revival. Mm-hmm. But the prayer that's repeated uh, three times, yes. turn us again, yes. oh God, yes. and cause thy face to shine, Sorry. and we shall be saved. Yes. A, a revival is a time mm-hmm. when the people of God who have gone so far from him that they can't find their way back, but they can still fall on their faces and plead with him, and they do so, and God does exactly what that prayer describes. He turns them again, he turns himself again, and when a turned people and a turned God meet, that is revival. Mm. And of course, the outward manifestation of this is holiness. Yes. In revival, there is an awesome sense of conviction concerning sin. The holiness of God rises before the people's eyes. They feel more deeply than ever in their experience their own sin. Mm. And they are blessed with gifts of repentance that exceed any repentance they've ever known. Yes. They mm. turn with all their hearts to the Lord. Mm. Holiness grips them and it begins to flow. So that the revival essentially has two parts of what we would technically call the revival, which is in the church among God's people when they come fully alive to the holiness of God, and then the outflow, which we call the awakening, where the world is suddenly arrested. The world says, what's going on? Look at these people. They've called themselves Christians for years, and we've said we don't believe in Christianity because we don't believe in them. But now look at them. Look at how they love one another. Look at how they love righteousness. Look at how they make restitution for wrongs they have done. Look at how they reach out and help others. Look at how their sense of justice flows. There's something here we're not going to miss. And so the world comes flocking then to discover what has turned Christians into God-like being. Well, that's what we're about. That's what that's what the gospel is about. We just can't make it, Jim. No. We can't make it without this happening. Yes, yes. Let's go back and take a phone call. We have a question. Hi, Wayne. Welcome to Springs of Living Water. Yeah, how are you doing, Ray? Good. What question would you like to ask Brother Roberts? Yeah, I would ask, so why is the uh, church uh, they are taking in the worldly type music on the radios and TV and so forth like that. They're putting a 
this world of music, they put the name gospel, like gospel rap and gospel this and gospel that. And what you easy ask is nothing new under the sun. Now, that's my question right there. Okay. Wayne, listen to the radio and he'll answer you. Well, when God has brought the church under judgment and he's not there himself in any manifest way, and yet the church won't face that fact and won't fall on its face, as we said, and plead with him to return, and yet they want to go on with church, well, then why not join the world? Mm. Bring in everything under the sun uh, and give it a little religious flavor and, and say this is Christianity. See how delightful it is. See how much fun it is. Mm. Uh, see how much like the world we are. You, you don't have to think that if you become a Christian, you're going to be separate or different uh, or, or, or people are going to dislike you. No, no, join us. Uh, we in the world are one and the same. Mm -mm -mm. And that's what's happening to us. Sad scene, isn't it? It really is. Oh, this breaks my heart. Yes. You know, part of what has happened in my own life I was trained in seminary the marketing skills necessary for building a business. Yes. And I was taught that I was a coach or a CEO and that I dare not spend a great deal of time in my study because the people needed their needs met. And my job was to administrate all of the programs of the church to meet all of the needs of the people. Yes, many a pastor has been led astray in that fashion. But here in my mind is a remarkable thing. I have been engaged in ministry for well over half a century. In the early years of my ministry, we never faced a counseling situation. We knew nothing about psychologists or psychiatrists in the church. The Word of God met the needs of people. Yes. Mm -hmm. They were liberated from their sin, and they found that they had a whole life that made sense in Christ. But as the church grew more and more careless, as sin mounted up in the church, then we have really what Jeremiah described in these immensely uh, impressive words. You have healed the daughter of my people superficially. Yes. Mm -hmm. And so we are dealing with innumerable millions of people in the churches who only know surface type of healing. Uh, I've thought of it this way. Uh, if uh, your mother were gravely ill and time after time you had sought to get her uh, to consult a physician, you began to suspicion she had cancer. And finally, the whole family got together and marched on mother and said, Mother, we're taking you to the emergency room. And so you did. Yes. But as you arrived... At the hospital, your mother insisted she was going to walk in on her own, despite her great weakness. And in trying to do so, she fell over into a hedge of rose bushes with thorns. 
and she received many scratches. But you managed to get her out of the thorns and into the emergency room, and immediately the whole corps of medical people concerned themselves with the scratches. And after working on her uh, for 45 minutes, they said, ah, now all is well, mm. and send her home. Yes. And that, I think, is what happened in millions in the church. Mm-hmm. Their scratches uh, are being bandaged, but their deep inner wounds are untouched. Yes. Because they do not yes. know the Lord. Yes. And they've never come either to repentance or faith. Mm. Let's go to another caller. Uh, Freddie, welcome. What would you like to ask? Yes, um, I have actually two questions. Uh, but one is, I wonder why is it so hard for us to repent? Why is it uh, that generally there is no desire for it to repent? Whenever um, I, I talk or say something about repentance, uh, to other Christians, it just seems to scare and frighten them away. And not and not only that, I, I recognize that even in my own heart that uh, it it always seems so hard to be there. Always there's always this resistance that rises up in the heart and uh, just doesn't want to. Uh, re- uh, that just doesn't want to repent. Hmm. That's one question. Freddie, uh, Freddie, let him answer that one, and while he's answering it, turn your radio down. Okay. Thank you. All right, that uh, is a significant question, and one that I wish the whole church all across America would face. Amen. There is an immediate relationship between my view of God and my repentance. Hmm. If I'm using God. If my interest in God is to get him to do something for me, if, in other words, I have never really been saved from self, Mm -hmm. if my notion of salvation is that I'm saved from hell, but never from sin, Mm -hmm. then I'm going to work things to my advantage. I'm going to walk to repent no more than I have to to get what I want. But on the other hand, if my great interest is God, if the whole focus of my life is God, then my relationship to God is not to get something out of God, but to give something to God. Mm. And what I would be giving to him is love, adoration, Worship, mm. obedience. So if a person has a low view of God, they're going to have a terrible struggle with repentance. Mm. The higher their view of God, and the greater their longing to honor this great and awesome God, uh, the greater the inward prompting toward full repentance will be. Mm. And so if one finds that they have very little inclination toward thorough repentance, then the biblical advice is quite clear. 
get a higher view of God. Uh, I think a lot of people who call themselves Christians and do read their Bibles, now we've already spoken, many who don't even read them, but many who do read their Bibles would be wise to call a moratorium on all selfish use of the Bible. Mm -hmm. Instead of going to the Bible to find some little pink tablet to make me feel good, <laughs> some little pick-me-up medicine, My uh, some nice sweet little promise uh, to make me mm -hmm. like myself and my world better, so I should just simply cancel all that use of the Bible for a protracted period and every single day use my Bible to discover who God is Amen. until I have such Amen. an awesome sense of God that I cannot possibly repent sufficiently to please Him. I'm deep uh, driving motivation toward repentance. Mm. Brother Roberts, what you're saying is so cutting to my heart also because I recognize that the greatest sin of my life has been my training in entrepreneurial uh, philosophy. Yes. That somehow I should be able to use the Christian faith to get to heaven. Yes. I should be able to yes. use God to build a successful church. Uh, in other words, I'm trying to use, and, and I have had to just turn aside and repent of that and go a long way the other direction and say I would rather fail than risk using God to build my kingdom. Right. Mm -hmm. yes. mm -hmm. That's the way all of us need to be. Yes. Constantly under the profound determination to focus solely on God. Mm -hmm. Freddie, come back with your second question now. Are you with us? Hello, Freddie, did we lose you? Uh, hello? There you are. Okay. Come back with your second question. Yeah, my second question is, I've been uh, reading Charles Finney, and one of the things that he seemed to insist on was make yourself a new heart. And I think that's from somewhere in Ezekiel, where God said, told people to change, to make for themselves a new heart. So, in other words, it seemed to say to people that it's your responsibility to change. You make yourself a new heart. Don't ask God to do it for you. And on the other hand, I was also reading uh, Pastor David Workerson in uh, The New Covenant Unveiled, and he also from somewhere in Ezekiel puts an emphasis on the Lord saying, I will put in them a new heart. I will make for them a new heart. And I realize that these are like two sides of the same coin. And I wonder how do you bring the two together? Well, because you've used names, I'm going to have to do the same. And to say, and I say this courageously, but very, very carefully, there have been historically, since the early 1800s in America, two very, very different views of God, the Bible, and especially of revival. One is a man-centered view. The other is a God-centered view. 
in all the early days of American history when we were seeing revivals with such power and such frequency. They were God-centered. But when Mr. Finney arrived on the scene, with no biblical background, no real understanding of these things, but a very profound personal conversion, right. he took a different approach. He said that the high uh, view of God, the constant focus upon God, had ruined mm -hmm. religion in America and had brought the nation to the point where there were no revivals. And so he redefined revival, and in essence that a revival is nothing other than the right use of the right means. And in essence, what he said was, anytime you want a revival, you can have a revival. Mm -hmm. So we then had to have some new language to d distinguish these two views. So we have these words, revival and revivalism. Mm. Now, Finney is the founder, the father, the promoter, the main spokesman of revivalism. Whereas the rest of the church prior to Finney stood for revival. And that's partly why he made this tremendous focus on you must create for yourself uh, a new heart. Uh, but the other men uh, who have a saner and a broader and a more complete view of Scripture place the emphasis upon the new heart that God gives. The psalm I quoted a few moments ago Turn us again, yes. mm -hmm. God. Mm -hmm. Now, obviously, all of us are called upon to repent. Mm -hmm. But it is possible for any Christian to sin to that point where they cannot turn themselves back to God. Mm -hmm. And as deplorable as this situation is, it is not hopeless. Because God can do what they cannot. And uh, that's really the answer uh, to the question that has been asked. Uh, how do you put the two together? Well, to whatever extent one can change their own heart, they ought to. But it's quite obvious that we reach that point where we can no longer make a new heart for ourselves. Mm. Uh, every time we're tempted, we have a choice. Uh, will I go God's way? Will I go my way? Will I do what the new heart calls for? Or will I do what the old heart calls for? But the nature of sin is that it becomes like a habit. It, it develops calluses uh, on the heart. And the person who gives themselves to sin repeatedly discovers they can't turn themselves. Mm -hmm. They can't make a new heart. But God can. And when in desperation they call upon him, then indeed the new heart comes. The book of, of uh, Judges is a wonderful, wonderful illustration uh, of these matters. I don't know whether you've ever uh, studied the book of Judges from this perspective.
But in chapter 2 of Judges, there's a very careful laying out of a pattern. And the pattern consists of these essential factors. The people were in right relationship with God. That'd be number one. Number two, they sinned. Number three, they did not repent. Number four, God brought them under judgment. Number five, when the judgment was so severe, they could not stand it any longer. They called upon God. (laughs) Number six, Mm. when their cry was out of desperateness, God heard their cry, and he raised up a deliverer. You have, from chapters 3 to 16, seven repetitions of that pattern. They sin, they don't repent, God judges them, the judgment becomes so oppressive, so heavy, so difficult, they cry unto God, when their cry is from their hearts, God answers, raises up a deliverer. Mm. And mm. the situation, you know, in summary here in this country uh, is we have sinned as a people. I'm speaking of the church. We have not repented. Again, I'm speaking of the church. God has brought us under judgment. And we said, oh, we can handle that. Mm. But the day we pray will come when the church says we can't handle this. We must have God. Mm. And the church begins to cry from the bottom of its heart.